My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we've watched two projects, if you will. The first being The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is the 1996 film, initially directed by Richard Stanley. For four days. For four days. And then taken over by the studio, who installed a new director. John Frankenheimer. Yeah. Uh, And in conjunction with this film, we watched the documentary uh, describing the creation of the film. Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's The Island of Dr. Moreau. Yes. But first, we're going to get into what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? I certainly will. I've had a very odd week this week in terms of what I've just been watching. I left off last week talking about Train Spotting, and so I picked up this week watching Train Spotting 2, which is a dramedy. It's directed by Danny Boyle. It's very loosely based on the books Train Spotting and also the book Porno by Irvine Welsh. They're sort of taking bits and pieces from them. It's not adapting the narrative entirely. It's sort of just picking and choosing, really. But anyways, after 20 years abroad, Mark Renton, who is played by Ewan McGregor, he returns to Scotland to find his old friends still aimless and self-destructive and spinning their tyres in middle age. He's sucked back into this, this old dynamic, and his life is further complicated after the psychopathic Begbie, who is played by Robert Carlyle, whom he stole money from and indirectly got jailed at the end of the first film. He finds out that he has escaped from prison. <laughs> Have you guys seen this one? No, we haven't. No, we haven't. We saw the first Transpot yeah. a while ago, but we've not got around to second. This really blindsided me with how much I loved it. The first movie never clicked properly for me, but I think this is actually a really outstanding exploration of what life might be like for these kinds of characters years and years later. The key narrative thread is is the Begbie bit and the attempts of Renton to reconcile with his friends after a near-death experience. He has a heart problem, not a, not a heart attack, but a malfunction in his heart that requires all sorts of surgery and things. And basically, uh, it, it's this near-death experience that he survives. He's He's got at least another 30 years to live, the doctor tells him, but he doesn't really know what to do with it now that he's had this close call. And so he goes back home and starts trying to reconnect with people. There's a lot of nostalgia, but it's all threaded into the plot with proper relevance. It's about flawed middle-aged men who worry that they've wasted their lives. There's a lot less of a focus on drugs. It's more concerned with the group dynamics and how they're all scraping by. Uh, Renton and Sick Boy, who is played by... Oh, what's his name? Johnny Lee Miller? Johnny Lee Miller, yes. Thank you. They're scheming to to start a, a brothel. Spud is on the verge of suicide. It's it's another it's another slice of life, like the first one was, but this is a slice of life years and years later, seeing how they've all developed. I really enjoyed returning to these characters at a different place, exploring how characters with these histories and problems might age and where their lives might go is really fascinating. And by the end of it, I was actually, you know, you know what, 20 years from now, I wouldn't be that opposed to... Another one, checking in on 60, 
seven-year-old characters, you know? It just in a nursing home with Bigby chasing them with a stroller. It reminded me of... It, it's, it's interesting. It reminds me a little bit of this documentary series called the End Up series. Have you heard of this? Yeah, yeah. Where for people who don't know, it started out in the 1960s and they've released, I think, nine of these films now where they went to... It's a British series. It got a whole group of kids in the 1960s and they were all seven and they were all from different socioeconomic backgrounds and uh, all sorts of things. And they made this documentary, Seven Up, about these kids. And then seven years later, they made 14 and up about these kids. And they went back and they got the same kids. And they've made the same... They've made a documentary every seven years since then bringing all of these kids back and seeing how their lives have have gone. And some of them have, you know, dropped out and refused to continue participating. One of them has died. Uh, You know, they're different. Spouses have, like, been brought in and, you know, the next one they're there. They're not there anymore because they got divorced, things like that. And they're actually to the point now that they've made... The last year was the most recent. It was 63 and up. So they have been following these same people around and seeing how their lives go for over half a century it's it's a fascinating experiment in documentary filmmaking and yeah and the same person has been making the documentaries over that yeah, time as well yeah pretty much he it, not the first one but he came in on two michael apted did and he's picked it up since and he's i think approaching 80 now so i would like to think that you know there was even if he were to pass away i would like to think that there's some plan in place to continue that until all the participants are no longer able but no the show is tied intrinsically to his like being he will not die until his grim work is completed (laughs) but anyways that's a whole tangent to say that i just i i find that to be an interesting concept the idea of picking up with people every so often and seeing where things have gone and I could see that as being like a worthwhile thing with train spotting in the future if they were to go another 20 years. So what would that be? That would be 2037 if they were to continue that arc. <laughs> I would be interested to see that because you never really do get narratives that explore the lives of of these kinds of characters in that way, you know? You never really see what the long run looks like for them. It, there's this mournful thread that's running through it of regret, of inability to overcome weaknesses and, and the idea of lost time. It's revisiting a lot of the locations and the scenes from the first film to emphasise that. There's lots of flashbacks to illustrate the character relationships. It gets a little bit overboard at points. There's this one very obvious scene where Spud finds himself on the streets where the, the chase that began the first movie happened and you get a flashback of that. Like, it's just a little bit, you know, hammering the point a little too much sometimes. But it is effective nonetheless. And it's got a wonderful script that's both more overtly funny than the first movie, but it's sadder and it's more contemplative as well. Boyle's direction is fantastic. You can see just how much he's developed over those 20 years. He has a much more assured hand and he's got this signature flair and cheeky use of cutaways and other idiosyncratic film language that he's been known to use in in the decades since, that he brings to bear here. And it gives the the movie a great style. The the licensed music, again, is is just brilliant. 
McGregor is really outstanding as this older, calmer, but rudderless version of Renton. He's tried to do well, but it just doesn't work out. And Ewan Bremner and Johnny Lee Miller are both excellent as well. Plus, you've got this this wonderful, charismatic turn by an actress named Angela Nedyalkova as Simon's kind of girlfriend, but also business partner. And she and McGregor have this great chemistry, and they've got this underplayed love triangle between her, Renton, and Sick Boy slash Simon that makes for a really great subplot. Carlisle is a cartoon in this movie, as he kind of was in the first, but he gets his own share of introspection. I, I still think it's a bit much, but I still... It's probably a better version of him than the first movie because you do get a little bit of the internal emotions and thought processes of him that you didn't in the first. Train Spotting didn't seem like a movie that needed a sequel, but what we have here not only complements the first film in a pretty vital way, but I think it outmatches it on every level. I was thrown by how much this connected with me given the distance I felt from the first. It's available on Netflix if anyone is interested. And if you were to to watch it, I would definitely suggest watching it back to back with the first because it is intrinsically tied in a way that it's, it's not just narratively tied, it's tied in terms of theme, in terms of emotion. It's built as a complement to the first movie, not a standard narr- not as a standard narrative sequel. It's like, I don't know, the second verse of the same song. Mm. Um, so It's like I, those I, movies that are filmed back to back. I highly recommend it, yeah. I next watched well, I next watched The Island of Dr. Moreau, but after that I watched The Island of the Lost, which was a special feature that was included on the disc for the Lost Soul documentary. It is a 1921 German science film, silent film, uh, that is a very loose adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau. It's one of the very first out there. It was thought to be lost for a, a long time. And it is a very loose adaptation. It's got different names for all the characters it barely follows the plot of the book and it's i suppose you call it a science fiction romance the take that they have in this movie and it's directed by a man named urban gad but it's about this this english fellow because even though it's a german film they're all english characters because of course it's a silent film so they don't have to worry about language really robert marston is this guy's name he's played by alf blutiker And he reads in a paper about a message in a bottle that has been found that's signed by his missing fiancée, Jane Crawford, who's played by Hanny Weiss. She's disappeared in London years earlier, and they found this message in a bottle in the bay, basically, that's saying that she's stranded on this island and she needs help. Now, Robert, he's already moved on and got himself a new squeeze. So he and his friend Ted Fowlin, who's played by Tronia Funder, they head to the island to do what is kind of unclear. There's rescue her or prevent someone else from rescuing her. Like, the dialogue is kind of muddled here in a way that I kind of wonder is due to translation or what. But it just basically that it comes down to, since he's already got a new girlfriend, Robert wants to get there and, I don't know, contain the problem before it becomes more of an issue for him. 
they they get there and they get stranded as well. They meet Dr. McClelland, who is played by Eric Kaisertitz, who has an excellent name. And <laughs> that's that's literally it. It's Kaiser, exactly the way you would expect that to be written, mm. dash, tits, T-I-T-Z. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's trying to make all of these you know, human-animal hybrids there, and he traps them there. He he blows up the ship that they arrived on, and he traps them all there. So as I said, this was originally thought to be lost, and, and it's still not entirely intact, what they found here. There are sections of footage missing, though it remains entirely intelligible. There are lots of jump cuts and skips of the reels are all of varying quality. You can see that some of them haven't had an easier time of it than others and been kept in better condition than others. IMDb lists it as a 78-minute movie, but the version that I saw was 62 minutes. So that gives you, I suppose, an indication of how much supposedly has been lost from this film. Um, but again, there's also the thing of how quickly it was. movies like this were played and what the actual yeah. runtime is supposed to be. So it... It, the issue gets con- a bit confused, but you can tell watching this movie that there are elements that are gone. It's quick moving, but it retains the moment-to-moment pacing problems that any silent film is going to have for modern audiences. It's got the wild gesticulating that all the characters do in, in lieu yeah. of being able to deliver dialogue. And those numerous interstitials, those cutaways to the title cards with all of the dialogue on it, it always slows down the pace. It always has to stay on the screen long enough for the slowest reader in the audience to get it. And it does interrupt things, especially for modern audiences who are used to a much more free-flowing form of, of storytelling. And it prevents complex storytelling as well. You can't do complex... You can't really do complex narrative in silent films because you just can't explain much by dialogue, you know? Mm. You couldn't do an Aaron Sorkin movie silent. Um, the Moreau connection, as I said, is tenuous at best. It only There's only one featured human animal of note, and much of the film is given over to this insipid love triangle between Jane, Ted, and Robert. Robert, once he gets stranded on the island, decides that he wants Jane back because she's the only woman on the island. And Jane learns that he has a new fiance, and so she immediately just starts making out with Ted. And all of this Degrassi High bullshit starts to become the vast majority of what this movie is. You get some really racist stuff too. McClelland yeah, has, yeah, I'm sure. McClelland has an Asian assistant named Fung Lu who has an opium addiction and spends half the movie trying to get opium, trying to get opium or getting high off of opium got a black manservant to Robert and Ted, who who also is stranded on the island. He's never even named, and he immediately goes, in the movie's words, back to nature, which translates to dressing up in a grass skirt, wearing a huge nose ring, and dancing around an open fire. It isn't surprising, but it's disappointing nonetheless. Yeah. It reminds me... Way back at the start of watching the list, I watched The Wizard of Oz, and on The Wizard of Oz disc, they had a whole bunch of silent Oz films as special features, and a lot of them had lost footage as well. And I remember watching one of them, and they had lost a lot more from these movies than you'd lost here. You'd have whole reels missing in that movie. 
I remember watching one of them as the characters are like going through this fantasy world and they're just a jump cut and all of a sudden there are a bunch of white people in blackface and they're dancing around harassing all of the main characters and it's just like what the hell even happened here <laughs> like perhaps it was a good thing that they lost that reel but yeah probably it, yeah it sort of reminded me a little bit of that um it's a staid and uninteresting technical production i mean the moving images were still enough at this point the soundtrack is now comprised of a generic piano theme that's under a Creative Commons license in the end credits. Uh, obviously, whatever the original intent was has, has long been lost. It's it's so hard to judge this type of film nowadays. It's totally different from anything that's around today, and it's incomplete to boot. It's quite dull. It's It drags, and it got bogged down in all this uninteresting soap opera drama. It simply didn't have the technology or the technique required for the complexity of a story like The Island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah. It's always fascinating on an academic level to see these things, but I can't recommend it for anyone who just wants to watch a movie. Uh, I next watched Hamlet, which is a tragedy uh, directed by Kenneth Branagh, based on the Shakespeare play of the same name. I've already talked about a version of Hamlet a while back. Let me just go back here and, and double check which episode that was. It The version I've already talked about starred Mel Gibson. I talked about it in the second episode of the podcast, in the, the popcorn episode. And that version was massively abridged. It cut half of the material. It's a four-hour play and it was a two-hour movie. This is a four-hour movie and it is totally unabridged. It contains everything that is in the original yep. play. It is one of the... It is the only complete... Uh, major film version of this Shakespeare's longest play Hamlet was and it's about Hamlet who is the Prince of Denmark he's played by Kenneth Branagh he discovers that his newly deceased father the king who is played by Brian Blessed was murdered by his uncle Claudius who's played by Derek Jacobi and after that his uncle Claudius has assumed the throne and married Hamlet's mother Gertrude who's played by Julie Christie and so Hamlet is pretty pissed off by that and he decides to scheme for revenge and that snowballs into bloody tragedy that that ends with corpse after corpse after corpse yeah in a in a way that only shakespeare can do this is brilliant it's just a, a gargantuan sprawling movie the ambition of which is totally unmatched by pretty much any other shakespeare adaptation as i said this is Shakespeare's longest play, and this movie is the unabridged version of that. It is over four hours long. It even has an intermission. It's expensive looking. It has a big sense of scope and scale. It was filmed both in a studio and at Blenheim Palace in Britain, which belongs to the Duke of Marlborough. And it instantly gives it this big, classy feel. The scale of the estate is very visible. The grandness of the architecture is very visible. And Branagh takes every chance he can to move from room to room through open doorways to demonstrate that it isn't loose, separated sets. This is this actual big, fancy building that they're in. The setting has been updated by a few hundred years. There are rifles and steam trains that are present. And people are dressed in a slightly more modern way. I 
wonder why it just doesn't really have any effect on the story in the way that, say, the updating of Richard III did. And I have to wonder if maybe it's to match the architecture of the estate that they were able yeah, to get that's, hold of. Yeah, that's likely. I imagine so. It's a little easier to do as well, because going back to making an entire production oh, yeah, yeah. look like the time that Hamlet was set in is really time-consuming and really expensive. Oh yeah, everyone. So everyone can wear all these. Cutting. Everyone can wear all these fancy outfits and you know silk yeah. and leather and things. Now that they've updated the setting, but it, it adds to this very elegant, stylish look that it's got going on. The story is still great. Hamlet is a great tragedy, and it's good to see the whole text realised. It's good to just have it on record. It yeah. gives things room to develop. It gives characters time to contextualise. That Mel Gibson version I talked about was cramped and breathless by comparison the sheer length of this movie does make it a test of endurance and attention span in this modern era but the material itself is just gold the editing is too quick at points you get these rapid reaction shots and a noticeable lack of pauses between different thoughts that are being expressed it's as if they're trying not to extend the runtime any further than they possibly have to but it steps on the impact of a few moments in a way that is actually really noticeable. It's not a constant problem, but it's enough to be an irritant. And I mean, I get why they did it. The movie probably would have been like four and a half hours long instead of four and four minutes, four hours and four minutes long, um, if they they hadn't done it. But still, Branagh gives a, a nice layered take. The relationship between Hamlet and Ophelia who's played by Kate Winslet, is given a lot of depth and shading. The looming conflict with Norway, which was entirely cut from the Mel Gibson version. It's very cleverly contextualised here with um, smart tricks of editing that allow us to see events depicted off stage, but without altering the Shakespeare script. I particularly liked this version of Claudius. Derek Jacobi is the MVP. He humanises him. He's not some scheming yeah. despot or psycho villain, but he's a very human antagonist who is very conflicted, and, and Jacobi is just extraordinary. Branagh is a bit too florid as Hamlet for my taste. Hamlet's madness, quote-unquote, is, is too obvious a fakery here. It's often pitched at broad comedy, and I prefer a darker take on that he gives the character this soft high voice also that occasionally undercuts his gravitas he, he like he's a oh father is that my father's ghost you know that sort of a thing yeah it still works it's just not my style you got an extraordinary supporting cast though including really great turns by richard Breers, nicholas farrell and charlton heston as the player king you also have bewildering cameos by Billy Crystal and Robin Williams in tiny roles that somehow really work because yeah. they're very well-chosen characters for them. Um, Billy Crystal plays the gravedigger that Hamlet has this obtuse conversation with upon returning to Denmark. And Robin Williams plays, oh, I forget his name, but this sort of um, f foolish, uh, foolish guy at the court that, oversees the duel that ends the film yeah but it's actually really from from when i watched this version i found robin williams scene very touching in a way oh yeah they're but, very well cast like it's not an obvious casting at all but it's it works 
Um, you don't usually get someone that big to play a role that's only there for that short a time. It's, it's an undertaking for sure, but it is a fantastic, fully realised take on the material that looks brilliant and it plays even better. I would love a studio nowadays. You'd probably have to get a, a streaming studio like Netflix or something or Amazon. I would love a collection of 15 to $20 million unabridged Shakespeare adaptations just of the whole canon with, you know, the best casts that you can get just to have it all there for posterity. And when yeah. you think about it, that's not actually the the waste of money that you might think it is because unlike, say, I don't know, what's the latest Netflix movie that's just come out and vanished as soon as it appeared on the service? Unlike something Dangerous like that. Lies. Yeah. Unlike something like Dangerous Lies, you have any of these movies. You have Hamlet, Macbeth, Much Ado About Nothing, Romeo and Juliet. These are Tempest. things that... The Tempest, these are the things that people will be returning to for years because it's already got a cemented place in the culture. Like it, I mean, all of the Henrys you can probably do without, but, you know. I reckon just ones. do the whole lot. Do Timon of Athens. Just have it all on record just for, just for the perpetuity. Because the only other thing like that is the 60s, 70s BBC productions that they did, which is all 60s, 70s public television level things mm. it's, it would just it's be like, also a very it's also a very good educational resource exactly oh, yeah. I, was, I was about to say you know that that's that would be a smart play for any streaming things because all of a sudden every school in the world in the western world has a netflix subscription so that they can show these shakespeare plays to their classes yeah. basically printing money yeah it's an investment yeah, it's an I, evergreen I, property yeah i think hamlet is one of those great stories because there is so much ambiguity about say a character like claudius like did he kill hamlet's father we don't really get any proper evidence of that fact we just get a ghost saying it yeah and claudius terrified for his life admitting to it which doesn't hold up in court no well is his reaction when he sees the the actors recreate the well, it could, also, it could be, also be the reaction watching of watching a performance based upon his brother's death. Yeah. Mm. I like, like the way that Jacoby plays it in Hamlet as well. Like, he doesn't freak mm. out or anything. It's a very controlled performance. He's more just disturbed by the fact mm. that this is happening. Anyways, keeping on with the very weird week I had, I went from watching the four-hour version of Hamlet to watching the Monty Python Wind in the Willows movie. Uh, it's also known as Mr. Toad's Wild Ride in America because Disney got a hold of the distribution rights and just renamed it after their the ride at their theme parks. But this is a live-action family musical adventure comedy directed by Terry Jones. I say I said it was the Monty Python Win in the Willows thing. That's sort of just a shortcut. Terry Jones is the, the director and everyone else in Monty Python appears in the film with the exception of Terry Gilliam who is busy making 12 monkeys but uh it very much has that tone and sensibility it's it's based on Kenneth Graham's novel of the same name Wind in the Willows and it's about Mole who is played by Steve Coogan and Rat who is played by Eric Idle this is a live action movie by the way it's not animated they're all dressed up in very 
very subdued makeup to look like these animals. Um, they must wrangle their dim-witted aristocrat friend Toad, who is played by Terry Jones, as his crazed obsession with cars allows a sinister cabal of weasels to wrest away control of his ancestral estate in a dodgy real estate scheme. Uh, have either of you ever seen this before? No, we haven't. I've, I know the song Secret of Survival from oh, yeah. it, because yeah. it was on a list of villain songs maybe on TV tropes or something. And it totally and slaps. It, and it, it slaps like it's hell. It's it, Such a good, villainous, just ruckus. Yeah. Um, very threatening. Mm. I love the, you're in the Wildwood, and every child could tell you that you've got no business to be here. Yeah. I loved this yeah. as a kid. I haven't seen it in ages. The Monty Python connection is really interesting. It, it creates a bizarre tone, and... That absurdity is the movie's greatest strength. Actually, when I first saw it as a child, I was like maybe six or seven, and I was obsessed with those junior novelizations of movies at the time. And so I thought, I'm going to write my own Wind in the Willows novelization. And I got like a third of the way into the movie before I found out that there was already a book of the story. And I was like, well, what the <laughs> hell am I doing this for? <laughs> oh, that's great. So you always check. I never read the book, but I, I looked it up after watching it. And aside from the real estate aspect, this is a surprisingly faithful adaptation. It's a nice series of episodic adventures that follow on from from one from the other. And it's got that whimsical quality to it that good children's stories have. And that's also laced with an undercurrent of very Python-esque subversiveness. Meanders a bit towards the end, though. But the, the touches of the Python humour and eccentricities are all the best parts. The characters are barely styled as, as animals. Toad and the weasels are the best styled of those. They, they're the ones that bring to mind their, uh, their real-world parallels the most. Like, the rabbits are just guys with bunny ears put on their heads, for instance, and little bobtails. Uh... There's a talking sun that picks fights with Toad. All the, there's this very fanciful world filled with idiosyncrasies that is very much in the wheelhouse of classic British comedy. The characters are two-dimensional. Mole gets a really rote character arc that never lands. It's just in service of gags, pretty much, and that's okay. Jones as Toad is hilarious. He prances about like a fool and squeals his lines in this absurd voice it's it's the oblivious self-obsessed nature of toad is the best joke here he other than secret of survival he's got my other favorite song in the movie is just where he's dancing around singing about how great he is and you know Same compared with that of toad. the army all saluted as they marched along the road was it the king or the president no it was mr toad you know, it's 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 very amusing. It's it's got good personality stuff here. Terry Jones, rest in peace. He's got such a brilliant way of directing comedy, mm. and it's just great. I'll get to that in a bit. But um, Secret of Survival and Mister Toad, as I said, they're they're great songs. But the rest of them sort of just range from actively bad to average they're also pretty scarce as well this is a the musical elements of it sort of are intermittent at best here's the rub despite its charm 
I think it's pretty amateurish. The, the dialogue can be dry and leaden at points, and Joan's direction is actually, I think, pretty uninspired. And the, the production values here are very lax. This looks cheap, like a classic BBC show most of the time. But I was talking more about, you know, his work directing the Monty Python films. Mm. Uh, the musical numbers are where things really pep up visually, but it, again, there aren't enough of them. Uh, you got some really delightfully over-the-top performances, though, from the whole cast. Special kudos to Nicole Williamson, Anthony Sher, and a brief scene-stealing scene from uh, John Cleese as, as Toad's hateful lawyer. Toad gets arrested <laughs> for stealing a motor car and crashing it, and John Cleese, as his lawyer, just spends the whole of the courtroom scene talking about how uh, terrible a person Toad is and how he should be locked away forever and have the key thrown away. And this is the defence that he... This is the best defence he can <laughs> offer because he is such a terrible, terrible individual and such a threat to public safety. Um, Steve Coogan's the weakest link, but he's stuck with the least dynamic character. It is very against type for him, though. He's very timid and reserved, which is not Steve Coogan's nor usual shtick. Altogether, it holds up pretty well, but it's it's aged, and its poor production bona fides stand out now even more than when it was made, I think. It's funny, and it's odd, though, and that makes for a really good offbeat comedy for kids that, you know, stands out from the pack in that regard. Finally, this week, I again, I just pivoted from Monty Python, Wind in the Willows movie, back to Shakespeare with Twelfth Night, which is a romantic comedy directed by Trevor Nunn. It's based on the Shakespeare play, obviously, and it's updated to the 19th century. It's about travelling fraternal twins, Viola, who's played by Imogen Stubbs, and Sebastian, who is played by Patrick McIntosh. They're separated in a shipwreck, and they wash ashore in the country of Illyria separately, each thinking that the other is dead. And for reasons that I couldn't quite gather, Viola decides to disguise herself as her brother with a fake moustache and goes to work for... The local Duke Orsino is played by Stoby, Toby Stevens, who is, of course, Maggie Smith's son and was in Black Sails, among other things. Um, yeah. And she quickly As falls Captain in... Captain Flint. And she quickly falls in love with him. And he assigns her, again, thinking that he's... that she's his male manservant. He quickly assigns her to woo a neighbouring aristocrat named Olivia, who's played by Helena Bonham Carter, on his behalf. But then Olivia falls in with Viola, falls in love with Viola, pretending to be Sebastian. But yeah. Viola pretending to be Sebastian is already in love with Duke Orsino, who has commissioned her to woo Olivia. Yeah. And Duke Orsino is having complicated feelings for yeah. Sebastian slash... Exactly. Yep. <laughs> this is a very broad comedy with plenty of cringe humour and a very jolly temperament. The core misunderstandings and confusions are enjoyably messy and complex. It's a very fun gimmick. Um, anyone who this might sound familiar to, um, the movie She's the Man, starring Amanda yeah. Bynes. I was about to say that, yeah. The early 2000s is, is based on this same play, just without the language and updated to a much more modern setting. And there's a spider, I think. There's a lot of cringy humour here, which isn't usually my cup of tea. And I get the strange feeling that watching a stage production of this might be more enjoyable as a result of the audience, having the audience see oh, it with yeah. you and the reactions. 
the movie yeah, sort definitely of... like with a lot of shakespeare's plays like back in the day people would jeer and like throw things oh, at yeah. characters that Absolutely. they didn't like it's a rocky it horror picture really... show yeah exactly. it was it was a whole thing so i think with an audience with like a lot of people around you twelfth night really shines yeah we watched this his... ages ago yeah his shakespeare's comedies are great to watch in a group setting Oh, yeah. Well, his dramas work either way. So he's very versatile in that regard. Yeah. The movie here just sort of traps you in these really awkward moments, like up close (laughs) and personal with these characters, and there's just no relief of having this be a shared experience with the people around you. Um, They're they're all very good characters and performances, but suspension of disbelief is required for the disguise. Yeah. There's, There's not a chance in hell that... Anyone would believe that Imogen Stubbs is a man with this, you know, dinky little moustache that she sticks on her face. No, no. She she does not look male at all. Um, th- there are all these subplots also that involve the exploits of members of Olivia's family and household staff that make for some of the, the best stuff in the movie, even though it's totally divorced from the main plot. And some of the best actors like are there. Thing- is this? Is there a whole subplot with the butler? Yeah, who's played by Nigel Hawthorne? <laughs> um, uh, the ending of the play with him is just so good, perfect. But you get some of the best actors there as well: Nigel Hawthorne, Ben Kingsley, Richard E. Grant, Imelda Staunton. Kingsley Ooh. can sing actually pretty well. Of course he can. Uh, it's, yeah, I find found that interesting because he hasn't busted that out very much in movies. <laughs> But the Save best part of, for the rest of us, Kingsley. The best part of the story is the wild finale in which things get really complicated when all the characters start crossing paths with the real Sebastian. <laughs> uh, and spoiler alert: they all pair off, um, and Olivia gets with the real Sebastian, or Sino gets with uh, Viola because apparently, and you guys would know this, of course, but um, twins are exactly the same as each other personality-wise, and to talk to one is to talk to the other. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's basically like talking into the hive mind. Yeah. 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 I, I've essentially got a backup. Yes. Duke yeah. Orsino was just apparently waiting for an excuse to get down with his manservant, and he... You know, as soon as he finds out that she's a woman, he's just like, yes. It's like, come on, Orsino. He's really interested in the power aspect of it. Mm-hmm. It's like, come on, Orsino. But it's less of, like, an intense, like, mean thing, but it's yeah. more of, like, a kink for him. I think it's like, Orsino, if Viola in that situation was a man, go for it, Orsino, Go for man. it, son. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, like, it's... You know that he makes her put on the moustache sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. It's um, a thing now. But but it's not gay. He'll he'll be the first one to say, it's not gay. Mm. It's role play. <laughs> Nun's direction I leaves... I want you to pretend to be your brother. <laughs> Nun's direction leaves something to be desired. It, it's not quick-footed enough to keep things moving as they should, especially in the first half. He has good sets and scenery, but he doesn't show it off properly. And it's all a little bit pedestrian. It kills some of the movie's pep. This movie should be a lot bubblier and bouncier than it is. It is a very fun story, marred by presentational problems and awkward staging of some humour scenes. 
there's a great cast and it's it's pretty entertaining but i'd really like to see a stage production i think anyways that's me done for the week very odd and jumbled collection of films there but such is the list what have you guys been watching well for us we've had an eclectic week as well yes and funnily Uh, enough also watched a movie directed by kenneth branagh uh, we watched the 2020 Artemis Fowl adaptation. Oh, I've not heard good that, things about this. That we have been waiting for for, for years, years since we it, read the book. Right, I take it you are a fan of the book series then? We are. We, 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 we haven't read I've, all of the books. I've read a good amount of them. The, so, the sort of yeah. first few. Me too, so, I read a lot of them, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, the uh, character of Artemis Fowl is very fascinating. Yeah. Just in terms of the morals. So basically, in the book, uh, you're given the character of Artemis Fowl. He's a child genius and is also a criminal mastermind. And he's an actual little, asshole. He's a little shit, basically. Like, he straight up kidnaps, uh, kidnaps someone to get a ransom. Yeah, it's that simple. That's the entire plot of the first yeah, and book. He's- his father is like a, a mafia don, like the head of a crime yeah. family. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's brilliant. Mm. The book is brilliant. Uh, it gets more complex as, as the series goes on. Yeah, like you get uh, brought into villains. Yeah. Like, the, basically the conceit of the books is it takes place in a world where fairies, centaurs, gnomes, leprechauns, dwarves... They all exist. Like, it's a fantasy world. But that's it's hidden under yeah. the real one. So, essentially, the plot of this adaptation is that Artemis Fowl, a young criminal prodigy, hunts down a secret society of fairies. By secret society, they mean, like, civilization. An, ac- an actual civilization, an actual society. Yeah. yeah. The way that, like, fairies. Hogwarts exists within the real world but is hidden from yeah, view from exactly. regular people. No, not really. Well, except Haven City is, like, underground underground in the quote-unquote core of the Earth. But it's not really the core of the Earth. It's what we can... It's close to. It's set set in Ireland, and it's playing on all of these, you know, Irish folklore and culture and things. Yeah. Like the... Isn't isn't the the name of the fairy intelligence services Leprechaun? Yes. Yeah. Uh, all of the puns are actually yeah. really, really fun, and they really spin into it in the film. They do. But the difference between the book and this movie is that Artemis's goal is not an inherently villainous one. No. Uh, he's looking for his missing father. Who's his father kid- has been kidnapped by... And is being the- held ransom by a character called Opal Cowboy. Who's like the arc villain of the books? Yeah. Uh, from the get go, the performances in this movie are actually really strong. The cast is very strong. The cast in this. is very good. Ferdy uh, Ashore plays Onimus Fowl Jr., the main character, the boy mastermind. And, and I guess I know this is. A, I'm sorry, but this is a tangent. But like they've been trying to make this movie a long, long time. I'm yeah. I'm yeah. old enough to remember back when Tom Felton, fresh off of the first couple of Harry Potter movies as Malfoy, was uh, being uh, discussed as an Artemis Fowl. Uh, he would have been great. He and been he's fantastic. like, what, in his early 30s now? That's how long yeah. they've been trying to make this. <laughs> uh, but with Ferdia Shaw, 
he nails the character. He does. Uh, because it's a very tricky thing to write and perform a child genius. Yeah. Uh, with... And Ferdia does it brilliantly, and the script handles it very, very well, because Artemis, while is a lot smarter than a lot of people, still falls into the little idiosyncratic things of being a child. Yeah. Uh, impulsivity, this sort of whiny selfishness at times. The, this sort of self-centered nature of children. Yeah, and Ferdia plays that... He yeah. plays on that line so well. He does. Whenever he has to sound smart... He sounds smart. He sounds smart. You buy it if you put that in he a scene, knows what he's talking about. Yeah, if you about. put in a scene which is taking dialogue directly from the book, and the writer of the books, Ian Colfer, has been a part of making the movie. Whenever you're taking dialogue straight from the book, he, Ferdio, absolutely nails yeah. the dialogue because there's a sort of biting nature to... Artemis' intelligence. Because Artemis is not a good person. No, he's not a good person at all. He's, he's a little shit. And, but like, I, yeah. the movie would have been a lot better if they kept him as that s- semi-heartless figure yeah, from the book. In the mo- this they, movie, they valorize the character a little bit too much. Too much. They, they, they give Artemis Senior, played by Colin Farrell, yes. they give him too much... They give him... Heroic aspects to his personality. But it's a great performance. It's from, a great performance, but like it's too. It's like Disney were like, oh, we can't, we can't have the main character of this franchise just thing. be a criminal. Mm. Like we have to give them a good reason to do it. And it's a decently good reason. And it's a decently good reason, but the, it sort of takes yeah. away some of the bite the, to the, the story. The dark elements are still there. You see it in. Artemis that he could eventually yeah. grow into villainy. Like, there's a deleted scene and we watched this on Disney Plus because it was shoved there because they didn't want to wait to put it into cinemas mm. because, as we've seen, not what it wasn't going to make money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it... What was I saying? The deleted scene. Oh, the deleted scene shows that and Artemis has a cutthroat yeah, aspect to his nature. Like, he is... He, like, poisons a fairy... With holy water. With holy water. And, and, and holds, like, the... like Holds the cure, cure for, it, for it away from them while they're... While they're dying and burning. And, burning. And, like, and if this scene was in the movie, <laughs> it would have gone a long way to giving Artemis that kind of edge. This movie is edited to hell. Yeah. The action scenes are choppy. Like, I... I, It's been a while since I've seen Thor or any other sort of Kenneth Branagh action-y movie, but I can't ever remember action scenes that he's directed being this bad. Does it have the feeling, like you brought up that deleted scene, does it have the feeling that it's been ripped apart in editing to sanitize it? I think so. I think so. It's it's too short. It's too short. If this movie was 30 minutes longer and had more scenes of characters talking to each other... It would have been a lot better. It would have been a lot better. Release the Branagh cut. 
Yeah. <laughs> Quick, Hopefully. let's start a new Twitter hashtag. Yeah. Um. There's too much plot. If they had cut the character of Opal completely from this movie and just had her be a character in the background sort of controlling and manipulating events that you only find out about her like later into the film, that would have worked a lot better. Yeah. If we didn't see Artemis Sr., if we started the plot off with Artemis holding Holly Ransom and then you get the context, the context of why he's doing it, if they adapted the book. <laughs> yes, exactly. If, if you gave the character an air of mystery about him, if you gave Artemis the sort of image of a teen psychopath, but then you slowly sort of broke down the barriers and showed, no, he's actually doing this not only to save his father, but to protect this relic that could destroy like, the world. The, the, the best thing they could have done for the plot is they they don't immediately tell us that Opal has yeah. Artemis Senior. We can have it so that Artemis believes that the fairies have him. Yes. And that everything he's doing is to get him yeah. back from them. Yeah. Uh, it would be that much more interesting for Artemis to figure out that, no, he's being manipulated too. Yeah. I think the three great parts of this movie are Josh Gad as Mulch Diggums. He actually nails he, it. He is brilliant in this. Like, the jokes he gets given to say are actually really well done. The thing with the goblins was The hilarious. thing with the goblins when he was in prison, that was just fantastic. Uh, the CG on a certain couple of moments in the film on Josh Gad was... Oh boy, but there's really no way you could have done that without it looking bad. It's not as terrifying as a lot of people make it out to be. But it's still not good. Because you know how Malt digs through the earth, right? Yeah, he, he unhooks his jaw, eats the earth, and yeah. craps it out behind him. Like, yeah, it, It's not nearly so horrific to look at when it's you... It's still not good know, to look at. When you know that's how he does it, so does it... So you're not really confronted. But if, if, if you're going in, if you're blind, going in blind, this this will feel like you're dying. Like watching it, you'll be like, um, what? It's better with contact. Yeah, uh, Judy uh, Dench as Commander Root in this has there's an interesting quality of voice mm. for this character that she puts on. It's the sort of raspy kind of uh, Irish tinged voice. That actually is really cool. Like, Judy Dench puts on a really good performance in this film, even though she's given some weird shit to say. Oh, <laughs> the, one of her best lines in it is... Because she's, like, the commander of the... Uh, leprechaun. The, the leprechaun. So, he arri she arrives on the beach outside of Foul Manor, and she says in this just strange vocal tone... Top of the morning to ya. <laughs> no, no, it's just top of the morning. It's like, and, and it's, it's like, oh, that, that sounds moment, very I was threatening. With that moment, I was just like, Judy Dench just doesn't even care. No. And I'm here for it. She's she's two for two so far with uh, cats. cats and then Artemis Fowl. If she hits a third one, I think we need an intervention. Yeah. What has she got um, coming but, up? <laughs> I don't know. 
Um, <laughs> Who can know? I don't even think. I don't even think Judy knows. I don't know. She did uh, that god awful Red Joan movie last year. That was dull as sin, but yeah, not, yeah, but not bad in the same way. It's not memeable. That's not memeable. And the score by Patrick Doyle is it's very present. good. It's present. There's a lot of Irish tinges, yeah. as you would think. Ultimately, yeah. this just feels like a... It doesn't feel like a 2020 film. It's not finished. It, it's, it's, it's a movie that's not finished. It feels like... You know stuff like Percy Jackson and... Yeah. <laughs> and The Lightning Thief and whatnot. Mm. It, it, feels it feels like, like it's that. from that time... And not from now. So the, what you're saying is, wait for them to reboot it as a Disney Plus TV series ten years from now, like they exactly. did with Percy Jackson. Uh, By the way, I might have found the triptych for Judy Dench. Um, yeah. Blythe Spirit is coming out this year. It is about a spiritualist medium played by Judy Dench who holds a séance for a writer suffering from writer's block, but accidentally summons the spirit of his deceased first wife, which leads to an increasingly complex love triangle with his current wife of five years. So my understanding is... That's awesome! Yeah, my understanding is that uh, that the spirit possesses the body of 82-year-old Judy Dench and gets into that's a great. love triangle this... with Dan Stevens. And Leslie Mann. This oh, might be the. Oh, that's, that's this awesome. might, This will work as a very good ointment or solve uh, <laughs> on these not so great uh, experiences. Honestly, get, this, what, that movie could be excellent because it's basically Ghost, but instead of Patrick Swayze, it's Judy Dench, and I'm instead of Whoopi Goldberg, it's Judy Dench, and I'm here for it. Want to guess what the tagline is? What. True love never dies. Oh, perfect! They used that for Ghost. Oh, I love, I love Dan Stevens. I love Judy Dench. Uh, even in a bad movie, she's excellent. Yeah, but so like Artemis Fowl wasn't terrible. It, no, people go overblown with it. It's just okay. People have, and we've said this repeatedly on the podcast. People don't know what bad movies are. <laughs> You like, guys yeah. don't know what bad movies are. Either. Oh, I, I've seen I've seen some stinkers. Oh, <laughs> Lawson, I've uh, seen some stinkers. You just wait for when movies... we do our bad movie special sometime. I've got some okay. stuff to show you. Another movie we watched, which is quite a drastic, drastic change uh, move, is called Charlie Says. Ah, yes. Which is a film about. Uh, the Manson family murders. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it follows the stories of three of the women. You know, the three women who were... Let me see their names. Leslie or Lulu Van Houten, Patricia or Kate... Patricia or Katie, Karen Winkel, and Susan Sadie and Susan Atkins. Sadie Atkins, also known by the family as Sexy Sadie, named after the Beatles song. It follows them and their relationship with a woman called Carlene Faith, who's come to them when they're in prison and is trying to teach them because she works with women in this prison. Yeah, doing, like, uh, university courses and remedial work. Yeah, and she's trying to break these three women out of their obsession with Charles Manson, who's in this played by Matt Smith. Who Very you would know dark. as the Doctor. Eleventh Doctor, yes. Yes. And 
this movie is really good. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Like, Matt Smith is fantastic as Charles Manson. Because he's really... Matt Smith has really developed his American accent. Yeah. Because it used to not be so good. It used to be that, I'm American, see? Uh, sort of quality of voice. <laughs> not not uh, really. Not deceive it, but... Well, yeah, it's well... The, it's the British trying to be American. Yeah, the, you end up having very hard R's. Yeah, yeah, hard R's and all of that nonsense. 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 Uh, but he nails the voice. Yeah. Uh, from... And also the singing. Like, and also he the sings singing. really He's... well in this movie because Charles Manson was a singer-songwriter. <laughs> oh, yeah. He... Look up some of Charles Manson's music. It's... Okay, it's just... It's okay. Eh. It's the... It's the... It's that same kind of jangly 60s, 70s folk shit mm. that is just everywhere. Like, the Beach Boys did a cover of one of his songs, but didn't credit him. <laughs> and that's a whole plot line within this movie. And So, yeah, he, but this doesn't he wanted focus... to be a singer. It didn't work out, yeah. so he went to his backup profession of trying to start a race war. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, this movie and, doesn't... Yeah. Good to have a plan B. On, yeah, this movie doesn't <laughs> focus on Charles Manson uh, all that much. No. There are moments, but this is mainly the story of these three women, but primarily uh, Lulu. Played uh, by Hannah Murray. Uh, who some people would know from Game of Thrones as Gilly. Yes. Uh, she is fantastic in this. She is. She really sells the vulnerable naivete at the the beginning growing disillusionment growing disillusionment then the feeling that she had to do something yeah uh this is a very and also like the encroaching horror of what she did yeah which was kill people this this is a particularly feminist take yeah on the story because it's not focusing on why charlie did all this shit Although there is a great scene where he's spouting all of these wild, ranty conspiracy mm. theories about the Beatles in the White Album, like yeah. putting in little hints to yeah. say, hey, start Helter Skelter, which is apparently, in Charles Manson's mind, this race war and mm. all of this stuff. And it's mainly focusing on how to convince people in abusive relationships yeah. that it was abusive that yeah it, it, it's the title of the movie charlie says that's they, repeated that's by the repeated women. by the but by, by these three survivors of hmm. charles manson uh who ended up doing these terrible terrible things yeah and they have to reckon with that yeah it's it's not absolving them of any guilt no it's recognizing that if they weren't put into that situation if they never met charles manson they may never have done any of that yeah may have never even harmed anybody it's about that abusive nature which is present in cults yeah which is present in the in the cult but it's this is very very good i would recommend it so much yeah it's available on Foxtel Foxtel, uh, is where we watched it. Foxtel Um, On Demand. Yeah, I mentioned last week that I'm going through all of the 2019 movies to see what gets added onto the list at the end of the year, and this one's already designated as being added on, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. The funny thing is, Matt Smith, who has sung in the past, but is not like a professional singer and has no like bones about being one, actually sings Manson songs better than Charles Manson does. <laughs> and like the versions of Manson songs in this movie are actually pretty, pretty good. Like, like there's a there's a decent segment, little portion of the film. It's kind of a vignette, in a sense, mm. where he's trying to get signed by a record label, <laughs> but the record label he's trying to get signed on was one of the big ones. And they are and, not interested. And back in that point in time, you don't sign mm. mediocre acts. No. You sign great acts. And Charles Manson's music was just eh. Yeah. It's decently played, but it doesn't ring. You can't get past... Th- how psychotic Charles Manson yeah. was. It's like, and th- this, on the faces of the record executives, they were looking at this whole thing that Charles Manson has set up for them. They're just like, no. No, we're not. We don't vibe it. it. We're not this interested. This is a bit, uh, You're a dirty hippie <laughs> living on a ranch in the middle of bloody California. So, no. you know what? We're gonna, we're gonna move on and... Not get involved with your weird cults. But yeah, there's a lot of really great performances, like Chase Crawford, who plays The Deep in the, uh, in the Amazon boys. Prime The Boys, plays a really good Tex Watson. Mm. And just read up on the story of the Manson family. It's absolutely fascinating. And yeah, it's just a fascinating story. And, and the other good thing is, it doesn't linger long on violence. No. It's mainly before and after. Yeah. It's it's rarely ever the act, which is the respectful way, I believe, to handle uh, cases of real murder and death. Yeah. So, another another thing that we watched was all of the uh, TV show The Spanish Princess, which stars Charlotte Hope. Um... It follows the story of Catherine of Aragon, who you would have, you know, heard us talk about the Tudors. Catherine Aragon was uh, King Henry Tudor's, Henry Tudor's first, first wife. wife. And it sort of follows her from being a princess of Spain to becoming Queen of England. And the whole lot of bullshit around that yeah i'm uh, not gonna talk too much about as well it. as some sort of some remnants of the war of the roses as well yeah i'm not gonna talk too much about it because the second thing i want to talk about is a lot more complicated um but charlotte hope plays the character perfectly the accent work is fantastic the guy who plays uh henry ruari o'connor Again, they got another Irish person to play Henry Tudor, one of the most famous English monarchs. Um, He does a fantastic job at playing a younger King Henry who is nicer, but also still has a psychotic tinge to him. But I think the standout performance in this is from an actress called Harriet Walter, who plays Margaret Beaufort. She has a very great psychotic breakdown in the last episode, Mm. where you see everything on her face. You see everything has just not turned out the way that she wanted it to. And it's just 
fantastic acting. If you don't want to watch the whole show, that's fine, because it does get a little soap opera-y. Definitely watch the scenes where Harriet Walter is trying to manipulate people and control things, and when it all falls apart, breaks apart, it falls apart. It, it's a fantastic, like, almost catatonic performance. Um, But yeah, definitely... Definitely a good show. I believe there's going to be a second season, although I don't feel like it needs one. It seems to it's hit a really a interesting. Pardon? It's adapting a book, so yeah. Yeah. um, it's it's part of a string of um of books that stars have been doing adaptations of uh, of, of a series of books by a historical novelist named Philippa Gregory, who has uh, written a whole bunch of historical fiction. Based on the real, um, the real life English dynasties, like it's she's written a lot of them. There are fifteen of them, so they've written a whole bunch of them. You're you're talking about, I think, the third miniseries that Stars has done. It's been preceded by the White Queen and the White Princess, and um, yeah, yeah. It, this was designed from the start apparently as a a two season show of two eight episode things because yeah. it's adapting two books written by philip gregory yeah but the other show that i watched uh, a few episodes of with the family was messiah you would hit know that we talked about oh, yeah. this ages ago when we uh we're, were talking news we, yeah when we we're still doing news so which has been follows... now cancelled not only yeah. the news but the show messiah yeah so, it ex- Messiah explores the lines among religion, faith, and politics. It chronicles the modern world's reaction to a man who first appears in the Middle East, cl- by, who is claiming that he's the Messiah, or his followers are claiming that he's the Messiah. And it follows a CIA agent, an officer for the Israeli Special Forces, a Latino preacher, and his Texan daughter. And their reactions to this man and questioning is he who he says he is is he the son of god is he the messiah or is there something else happening now this show has some really great performances in it Uh, michelle monaghan who we've talked about previously is absolutely fantastic in everything she's in but i have to talk about the guy who plays the character al masai mehdi devi who's a belgian actor he plays this messiah character very well. There's a there's an interesting stillness to the performance where if this guy is putting it on, if this ca- character is putting it on, he is very good. And if he is actually the messiah, there is enough there are enough weird moments with him that leave you questioning. Every miracle that occurs could be explained by things but they could also be actual miracles we haven't gotten to the point in the show yet where we really find anything out we're being given like this is four episodes in we're giving the setup to all of these characters and it's very interesting my mum and i are i think the most in in the house we're the most interested in the show but We've got sort of competing theories about what's happening. I believe this character is... I don't know, I think he's working for some kind of organization. Because a lot of the things that 
have been happening in the show seem to be trying to cause a religious war. And yeah, it's it's a very interesting show. I understand why it was cancelled, though. It It's not really the kind of show that everyone is going to like. Well, also, it's, apparently part of the reasoning was um, it's a very internationally set show, which is yeah. films in a lot of different countries, which is very much yeah. complicated by what's going on at the moment. Yeah, It's also expensive, in, even on a good day. Yeah. And most centrally filmed stuff will always get yeah more support financially. There's a fantastic use of multiple languages in this show, mm. and it really set puts you in these places with these characters like when it changes countries you can tell where you are without them having to tell you but yeah messiah is quite good it's held together by good performances much like many of these kinds of mystery shows but yeah that's us so now we're going to play some audio of the trailer for the island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, yeah. On the sixth day, God created man. On the seventh day, he rested. And on the eighth day, in the year 2010, In a remote laboratory, an exiled scientist created something impossible. Unmistakably human. Undeniably animal. On the island of Dr. Moreau. I'd like to present my children. Father? Oh, my God. From director John Frankenheimer. H.G. Wells' most terrifying creation. About the line that separates man from beast. And the notorious doctor who dared to cross it. We are men. Because the Father has made us men. Marlon Brando, Val Kilmer, David Thewlis, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Directed by John Frankenheimer. That was the theatrical trailer for the science fiction thriller The Island of Dr. Moreau, which was directed by John Frankenheimer and briefly Richard Stanley. It is based on the H.G. Wells novel of the same name. It is about a gentleman named Douglas, who is played by David Thewlis. He survives a plane wreck and is found adrift by the creepy Montgomery, who is played by Val Kilmer, who takes him to an isolated island where he works for the mad scientist Dr. Moreau, played by Marlon Brando, assisting him in the creation of animal-human hybrids. So why don't we just go around to start off with and say what we all thought about this. Why don't you start us off, Sean? I think you oversold the insanity to us. I found it very very easy to follow and not that I was more talking crazy. about the documentary than the making of right. it. Right. 
Yeah, um, this movie has a lot of really good ideas. And a lot of really, really well thought out and well performed characters. However, it's... I feel like it's not saying anything. And whenever it tries to say something, it's sort of held back by the fact that David the Lewis's character, you don't really give a shit about him. He's barely got any character at all, and I actually feel sorry for David the Lewis. Because this is a situation where it seems that he was thrown into the, into the deep end with this production, and just had to make do with the bare minimum character. But yeah, it's got a very interesting aesthetic. Um, I... Again, people say that this is one of the worst movies ever made. Eh, it's not that bad a movie. The pro- the production was a shit was a shit show. Uh, but there's really interesting performances. Really uh, good script. Really decent what? script at times. John, what? There's some good moments. The Marlon Brando scenes have good scripting. They don't have scripting. Uh, <laughs> but we'll get to that. Uh, the practical makeup on a lot of the humaminals is yeah. The beast yes. people, if you. Will. I insist that we call that we call them humanimals. <laughs> Gotta find a way to change Marge back and replace the M and M's I took from the minibar. Hey, Homer. Flanders. Oh, a perfect vacation ruined. Hate to be a needy natty, but could you do me a favor? Mm. Milk me. Uh, I really don't want to do that, Ned. Oh, come on, Homer. All I'm asking is for you to yank my teats and harvest my milk. Oh, fine. Ooh, that's nice. You're actually quite gentle when you want to be. You know, you're not helping. In the jungle, the creepy jungle, Homer rides a freak. Shh, hey. Humanimals. All right. Uh, the, the makeup on the Humanimals is actually pretty incredible. Oh, yeah. And... A stupid amount of effort. Yeah, they really, really cared making those creatures seem present in the space. And all of the extras playing the Humanimals... Including Richard Stanley. (laughs) We'll get to that. Uh, They make it work. Yeah. Uh, We get a very strange Val Kilmer, but we'll get into that. Uh, A less strange Marlon Brando... Than I was expecting. Than I was expecting, but still... Quite weird. And an also also an inexplicable Ron Perlman. Yeah. What the hell, man? <laughs> Who was playing a character I never thought I'd see him play, but does a quite quite a good job of it. Hmm. Uh so Lawson, what do you reckon? I think this is a bewildering train wreck of a movie. The production problems are just infamous and I think the story behind the movie is more entertaining than the movie itself, which is oh, yeah, definitely. a hodgepodge of lunatic visual effects, terrible dialogue, and a, a totally jumbled narrative. I think it's kind of an extraordinary thing, like a failed fever dream. And in a way, I think it's almost more valuable in its current state than it would be if it was actually a good movie. Yeah, I think so. Because it's sort of a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale to directors who want to get involved with major studios like New Line. Who haven't been experienced. And 
Also a cautionary tale for studios who want to get fresh, up-and-coming, weird, esoteric-like directors like Richard Stanley. It's a, it acts as a cautionary tale for both. Why don't we start off with a little bit of the production history on this, if you'll allow yeah, me yeah. To, to monologue for a little bit here. I've got some stuff <laughs> written down. Richard Stanley, who, of course, we, we talked about his first film in our first podcast. We talked about hardware. Uh, he was an up-and-comer in the industry. He gets hired by New Line to adapt The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is a project that he's really passionate about. He's cared about the book a lot since he was a kid. He, he, he loves the story. And he wants to make this really gritty, dark, chancy version of it. He wants to go ambitious with it. New Line doesn't really like this. They start getting cold feet almost immediately. They try to remove him early on and get Roman Polanski to direct the movie. Um, but, Yikes. Uh, Richard Stanley goes to a warlock, of all people, and has the warlock cast some sort of magic that is supposed to fix situations for him and all of a sudden inexplicably Marlon Brando starts to back Richard Stanley even though he was expected not to so Richard Stanley gets to stay on as as director they all go to Australia to film the movie uh it's filmed up in Cairns (laughs) Rob Morrow was originally cast in the in the David Thewlis part they get to Cairns and it's built in like a really remote area that takes forever to get to. It's seasonally not a great time to be filming in Cairns because it gets very wet and the weather gets very temperamental. Cairns, of course, being a very hot, humid place to to film at any time. Um, to do anything in. Yeah. And basically things start to go crazy pretty much immediately. Val Kilmer was originally cast as the Thulis Morrow role, but then he got divorced and decided that he needed to cut down on the amount of time that he was going to be spending on the film. So they switched him over into playing the Montgomery role. The uh, he, he actually also tried to just get out of the project entirely yeah. just before it started shooting, but they couldn't afford to lose him because he was such a big name at the time. So he's not happy that he's there. And just he, he starts screwing with Richard Stanley pretty much the moment they start filming. Things go bizarre. Richard Stanley doesn't have a great control of the crew. He's not used to filming a, a project of this scale. There's a hurricane uh, that causes all sorts of problems. And after four days, basically, he is let go by the studio. And he disappears. He doesn't get on the plane that has been chartered to take him back to the United States. He just disappears in Australia and the whole studio is kind of freaking out. He disappears, by the way, after filming, after shredding all of his documents to make it as hard as possible for the studio to pick up the pieces. Feruza Bok, who plays the main female character, she tries to leave with him, but is warned by her agent that basically if she if, if she departs, then that's the end of her career, basically, that the studio yeah. will blacklist her. She can't get out of a contract like that. Uh, so John Frankenheimer is, is brought in. John Frankenheimer, uh, at sort of classic director. He directed a whole bunch of, of older movies. He's very much within the studio system. He's got a very abrasive temperament that doesn't gel well with any of the 
people on set and they pretty quickly lose any respect that they have for him. He alienates the Australian crew by being pretty insulting to them. And meanwhile, you... How do we even go into this next bit? But things just start going even more crazy. Kilmer gets more out of control. Marlon Brando arrives. Marlon Brando's already in one of the weirdest spots of his career where he just doesn't care. He hasn't cared in a long, long time, and he tries to screw with directors as often as he can just to see how far they will let him go. And, like, mentally he's not in a good place because his daughter had just committed suicide. His daughter had just committed suicide, and let me just look this up just to make sure I'm not accidentally slandering the, the Brando family, but I believe it was in response to her boyfriend being murdered by her brother. Um, yeah. Which is oddly enough connected to another another murder, I think. Explain? Um, listen, I gotta find it. Yes, um, in, y- yes, Marlon Brando's daughter, who took her own life, um, she, her boyfriend was murdered by her brother so that was apparently the start of a of a a pretty bad mental health decline that ultimately ended quite tragically so marlon brando not in a good yep which is tangentially related to the murder of bonnie lee bakley uh because christian brando was brought into that situation so there's a lot of stuff going on in Marlon Brando's life. Mm. Yeah, at this point. Uh, which I believe does show at times. Mm. Ah, I, um, I I should correct ourselves here that uh, that Christian Brando, Christian Brando was convicted of manslaughter, not murder. That he was originally yeah. charged with murder, but they had to drop it down because... Uh, his sister refused to testify and they had a they got a plea deal um anyway so marlon brando's not in a good place when he arrives on set and he's been, been screwing with directors for years anyway he there's this whole sequence of events where he tells john frankenheimer that he wants to wear an upside down ice bucket on his head as a hat that will be revealed removed at the end of the movie to reveal that he was a human animal all along and the hat was hiding a dolphin blowhole there's <laughs> A whole Which abs- I would have been down for. There's a whole absurd run where he becomes obsessed with one of his co-stars, a man named Nelson De La Rosa, who was the smallest man alive, and starts to insist that he be placed into every scene that Marlon Brando is in. They That he becomes a sort of mini-me figure for the Dr. Moreau character. Yeah, it's actually the genesis of yeah. the mini-me concept. And Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando, apparently, their personalities don't are like chalk and cheese. They don't really get along. They sort of have a lot of trouble with each other. And that there is one day where no, no filming happened because uh, Val Kilmer refused to leave his trailer until Marlon Brando did, and Marlon Brando refused to leave his trailer until Val Kilmer did. So you get all of this absurd stuff. You also get the fact that Marlon Brando is just not even trying anymore. He's being fed all of his lines by his assistant over an earpiece that you can actually see in some shots. I was looking for it. There's also a story that is not covered in the documentary but is is part of the lore now um, 
I think it's David Thewlis that told it he's not interviewed in the documentary because he thought that it might not be great for his career if he told all the stuff he knew, apparently. Um, <laughs> Small uh, boy. But he he said once that um, that the, the earpiece that Marlon Brando was wearing would occasionally pick up other radio transmissions. So all of a sudden he'd be in the middle of the scene and then he was paying so little attention to what he was doing, Marlon Brando, that he would suddenly interrupt himself and say, there has been a robbery at Woolworths. So... Mm-hmm. Just a, a total and complete mess of a thing. You have all of these extras who are dressed up as manimals. It takes hours to get them into their their costumes. They would get to set often and they wouldn't even be called for work because of all of the chaos that was going on. That they would spend and, all of these hours getting dressed up and then nothing. And this is cans. Yeah. It must have been the really heavy makeup yeah. boiling. The extras are interviewed in this documentary as, as talking about how they just basically they all were housed together in the same facility and that basically descended into a circus of, of chaos. Al- alcohol drugs and vi- uh, alcohol drugs and sex i was about to say violence not violence <laughs> but um surprisingly it it all just goes wild and then in the midst of all of this some of the the members of the crew Get word of a of a strange man living out in the middle of the bush, <laughs> talking to anyone who will listen about how Val Kilmer ruined his life. They go out there. It is Richard Stanley, who has been living on uh, the the farm of a of a gentleman, um, just yeah. living in a tent basically uh, for m- what is months now. The the project has overrun considerably, and uh, has has just lasted a long long time now they go out there and they convince him to come back so he goes and hides in the facility where all of the extras are being housed and then sneaks onto set disguised as one of the human animals and spies on production during <laughs> that that he was removed from and and watches it all go to hell basically it's he appears in the film <laughs> yeah he's in the On film like occasions they 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 show still photographs from the film in the documentary that point him out one of the i think it's the assistant director has a or the first or the first ad um has a great story about that that one extra that he always remembered the only one who would never take off his mask and whenever he spoke he was the only one without an australian accent um so it just is, is and pure who chaos. would just nail it every time mm. Uh, I should, uh, we skipped right over this. Rob Morrow got out of there when Richard Stanley got out of there. He was like, this is insane. He basically begged the the head of New Line to let him out of his contract. And David Thewlis was brought in. Richard Stanley, there's an extended interview with Richard Stanley on the making of disc, on on the disc for the, the, the documentary, where... He says basically, you know, David Thewlis thought he could just... He he knew about what was happening before he came in, but he thought he could just slot in and be unaffected. But this movie gets all of us. This movie... <laughs> there is no escaping this movie. Everyone involved. Uh, Thewlis couldn't make it out unscathed. But he also has a great story of how he unmasked... In the extended stuff of how he unmasked himself at the rap party of the... Ex- as, as the yeah. the extra, and that by that point the studio was just like, yeah, whatever, nothing surprises us anymore. <laughs> I, we don't care. It's um, like take your money and go. I, 
don't so anymore. Just a, a, a truly insane production that to the point that now um, James and Dave Franco are working on a television miniseries of it in the style of The Disaster Artist. They couldn't make a movie of it because it's just too crazy and they they couldn't fit it all it's into a much. movie. So, it's too much stuff. Yeah, just just insane. And, the, and the, the movie, which is not good, comes out and it it has all of this chaos attached to it. And the documentary itself is, I think, much more entertaining than the movie itself just because of yeah. mm. the, the sheer insanity of what it's talking about there. Um, and I, su- I suppose just briefly to get the documentary out of the way, it's pretty well done. It's it's hasn't got the biggest of production values. The lighting on, on a lot of the interviews doesn't look particularly good great um but it's done i believe see people walking in the back walking around in the background of some of the talking heads yeah like it's <laughs> it's it's done on a budget this documentary but it is such a uh such a fascinating story that it it that just overcomes any of its any of its faults and it's it's got a lot of involvement from the people obviously val kilmer is not involved and David Thewlis are not involved. Ron Perlman also turned down the the chance to appear. But Farouza Balk is, is interviewed. Rob Morrow is interviewed. Richard Stanley, obviously. Um, and uh, Marco Hofschneider, who... Yeah. We, we sort of skipped over all of that, that Marco Hofschneider was supposed to play Dr. Moreau's right-hand man, and he was... Basically, Val Kilmer had all of his parts removed, and... Uh, it, didn't like him in for some reason, or I shouldn't say Val Kilmer had all his parts removed, but Val Kilmer was like questioning why he had all of this dialogue and these sort of power play stuff that Kilmer was doing. And then just over the course of the film, things got moved around to the point that he was barely in the movie anymore. And but then not as bad. Brando wanted yeah, to have the Nels- little bloke Nelson as his Rosa, assistant. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was part of it also. But that's not nearly as bad as what happened to William Hookins, who isn't talked about in the documentary. He's talked about in the extended interview with Richard Stanley on the disc. William Hookins, Porkins, who played the, the creepy fellow in Hardware, yeah. a good friend of Richard Stanley's, is in this movie. He played the character of the Guardian of the Law, the, who is the bodyguard of the Keeper of the Law, who's played by Ron Perlman. Mm. And, Speaker of the Law. Uh, yeah, and um, he he was supposed to have a, a pretty decent role in it. Indeed, William Hookins is in the main credits. He gets star billing. Um, his entire finished role in the movie uh, consists of a shot of his elbow coming into frame. That's it. Uh, That's all William Hookins can be seen in the movie, um, oh, is his elbow and shoulder in, I think, one shot. Because... After Stanley went, he was known as such a such an ally of Stanley's that he was sort of... And for whatever reason, John Frankenheimer just really didn't like him, apparently. There were also all of these stories of how he would basically... John Frankenheimer would, would give him all of these instructions like, Oh, William, move over a bit, move over a bit. Yeah, a bit more, a bit more. No, William, you're still in the shot. Move over further. You know, just he was forcing him out of the movie. Yeah. So William Hookins, who again was playing a manimal, he had to get dressed up in the same in the the yeah. outfit every day. Was there for six months, and all you can see of him is his shoulder. 
So what a nightmarish production. They basically and... tortured P- Porkins hmm. for six months. So now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, let's talk about the finished product. And I think it was actually very important that we talk about all of that because without any of that context, there's no... I mean, I, I don't think that there's a great way to interpret this no. movie if you don't know how utterly bizarre the production of it was. And I'm sure we've, we undersold it too. Watch the documentary. Mm. You need to see the documentary and you need to see this movie to understand what we're talking about. So the narrative here is a muddled mess. Um, yeah. I, I think it springs the animals on us a little too early. Way too, too early. A little too suddenly. It is 20 minutes yeah. into the movie, but it is just sort of like, you, you're not properly prepped for it. No. There hasn't been enough weirdness demonstrated on the island that when David Thewlis walks into that shed and there is a dear lady giving birth on the yeah. on the table, it's just like, what? It's kind of just... I, comes out of nowhere. I do, I do kind of think that that works for the characters' response. It's like, what? See, but I think it just makes it unintentionally hilarious. I laughed. Yeah. yeah. And that's not yeah. the one that... It's not the way that you want no. things to go. A lot of the more scary moments are actually really funny. Yeah. Because it's not a scary movie. Like, no. I called it a science fiction thriller. I don't think this is a horror movie. You know. I don't think it was trying to be a horror movie. Um, the documentaries may be a horror movie, but uh, this The documentary one... is a screwball co- comedy. Hmm. I, I really hope that miniseries gets made. I think that could be great, but... Yeah. I'm not as hot on the, uh, the, the makeup as you guys are. I actually think it's kind of awful. And it the fact that they're on screen so much and they're just fully in the shot, there's no... I, I, I don't know, there's no technique to the way that they shot they're just there in full daylight and i think it exposes a lot of the shortcomings of the costumes we see a bit too much of them and i think that you start to see that these are pretty ratty animal costumes that are being reused over and over and over again for half a year to film this um i actually think that weirdly I suppose not so weirdly actually it brought cats to mind <laughs> whereas really? like yes the the CGI tack of cats got so much criticism and I sort of look at this as being like the other extreme of that and right. I question whether this is so much better I think they're both I think they're both disconcerting in different ways and I don't uh, think either of them quite work for me the ones that work are the like the hyena uh to me that one yeah works yeah. i i think the hyena that he... works like the, the main one the leopard person tamira morrison's character because yeah. he's inexplicably in this film uh, and it's he... the ones that are oh, it's that the reminds me more of a... human ones that are strange yeah don't work it's the ones that are closer to animal than yeah. human. Yeah, the, the hyena work. swine, played by Daniel Rigney, by the way, who is just... He's giving, I think, the best performance in this whole movie. Like, he's oh, the, yeah. he is the only one who's giving his character animal characteristics beyond yeah. the suit. He's ba- he's trying to behave like an animal. But you brought up Tamara Morrison, and I just have to add that 
in the original version of Richard Stanley's script, and I, I believe in the the book as well, because um, Richard Stanley's original script was much more faithful to the original book. Yeah. In the original book, the animal uprising happens in the middle, and it's sort of an, I suppose, an animal yeah. farm kind of thing where it falls apart once they have to manage things themselves. Uh, but in the original play, the the in the original screenplay and in the original book, the Feruza Bork character of uh, Asa... Is it Asa or Aisa? Been a while since I watched it. Asa, not Asa. sure. She... Panther Lady. Panther Lady, who is not really a Panther Lady in the movie. She she just gets some teeth. She's a cat girl. She gets some contact lenses and teeth. She actually had full body makeup made of her as... Yeah. ...of this, but she never got put in it because Richard Stanley wanted her to be in full body cat makeup and he, he wanted to double down on the, you know, the sexual yeah. stuff um, between her and the David Thewlis character. In the original script, she was going to be eaten alive by the Tamura Morrison character. And um, Tamura Morrison apparently would always say that the reason he did the movie was because he got to eat pussy in it. And (laughs) then, of course, they removed it. And they just had her very unceremoniously and anticlimactically hung. Yeah. But... Like, when that happened, I was like, wait, she's dead? Yeah. What? And, and this is where you get that the narrative is very muddled. The narrative is muddled by the production history. The script is being changed and rewritten on the fly. They're trying to scale down the weirdness of the Stanley version and of the the original novel. And I think that it kind of causes some problems narratively. It quickly devolves into some pretty unintelligible power plays. You don't get a lot of explanations here of what the, the laws are being what the laws are that Moreau has instituted, yeah. how the animals really treat him, what their view of him really is, what the animal uprising... The animal uprising all happens a little bit quickly for my liking. And it's it's never made clear... It's never made clear in the, the film what exactly it is that Moreau is trying to accomplish with these human animals. So yeah, I don't think it's ever made clear in the movie what Moreau's plan is, why he's doing this, what it is that he's planning to do. And there are actually a lot of those sorts of questions. Are these creatures that are created out of nothing? Are they test tube subjects? Are they human beings that have been turned into creatures? Or are they creatures that have been turned into human beings? Creatures that have been turned into human beings. Yeah. If that's the case, then none of them are older than 17, because that's how long Moreau's been on the island. But many of them look aged. The Ron Perlman character is ancient. So what are their life cycles like? No idea. You never really get this. And why is Montgomery such a creep? Like, that's the other thing, is like, Val Kilmer... <laughs> What is he even doing in this movie? Like, I, I he's actually playing love a Brad, his performance. He's playing a Brad Pitt character. He's, he's not playing trying. a Brad Pitt character. He's not no. trying anything. I love the moment where he... Where after Moreau dies, and we'll get to Moreau, after Moreau dies, he just starts talking like Marlon Brando. And I that was like just that so one, yeah. weird to me that I, I, I really liked that. I thought that was just fantastically bizarre but like the when you analyze his performance within what what is that character what is he supposed to to be or mean or do because he's the photojournalist no like dr like montgomery is apparently a neurosurgeon that just went 
wild <laughs> when he got there. Yes, but why does... That's never expressed, though. It's a very strange... And I, I don't think that Val Kilmer is giving it an honest go. I really do think that, with the exception of some of those truly bizarre sequences at the end where he's pretending to be Moreau, for the most part, he is giving a very effort-free mm. performance. He's he's not trying. Mm. He's just saying the words. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be there. He's ended up being there longer than he needed to be, ironically because of his own behaviour mostly. And th- and this is the movie <laughs> that kind of... Val Kilmer already had a, a reputation at this point for being very difficult to work with. Um, you know, Schumacher had a lot of problems with him on Batman Forever, apparently. But this is the movie, and his behaviour on this movie seemed to be the tipping point that kind of killed his movie star career. Because if you yeah. look at his filmography after that, it suddenly get it suddenly drops quite a quite a great deal in um in quality. He seems to have sort of had a bit of a I don't know, a a maturation of outlook over the years and he seems to be much more he he seems to realise what his behaviour was like now. But he yeah. he also doesn't really do much work anymore because I don't know if you guys know this, but he got throat cancer a while yeah, back, and I his speech has been heavily affected. He he doesn't have that um that that little mechanical doodad that some people use to simulate speech. He can still produce the sound on his own, but it's it sounds very strange and it can be very difficult to understand if you listen to interviews. With and him it's now. very quiet as yeah. well. It's a it's a very breathy, raspy kind of thing. Um, it's it, it has sort of left him unable to really work as much as he used to. But he is in that new Top Gun movie. Yes. Hmm. Yes. But yeah, this movie and his behaviour on it seem to have rendered him a rendered him a, a pretty bad blow to his career, and he has he didn't really get a whole lot of big movies after that. He has. The Saint and the Prince of Egypt the next year, which, of knowing how long these things take, would have... No, in, in The Saint in 1997, The Prince of Egypt in 1998, which, knowing how these things take, how long they take, probably was signed before this. But after that, it sort of just drops off. Yeah. That sci-fi movie, Red Planet, The Missing, but, you know, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But by the time you get to, you know, too much further than that, it's all direct-to-DVD stuff. Why is Aisa? Why is Aisa the only human-looking animal? Science. Well, the degradation thing. I think they talk about in the film. So are we if... then to understand that she is the most recent animal? Uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Because if if she is the the most recent version, the the most perfect version so far, the one that stays human longer, does that not imply that she is the most recent one or else there would be a whole bunch more that look like humans? In which case, how old is she? This is the thing that I go back to. They're being created out of animals, apparently. But how do they learn speech? How do they... I mean... the timeline the of this will never get. Yeah, the timeline of this movie is so messed up. It just doesn't work. None of it works no. because it's... It's been totally muddled and cut through by the production process and the scripting and the editing and all the changes. Richard Stanley is still trying to get his version of this made. Yeah, he is yeah. trying to do it as a as a TV miniseries now, which I actually and he should think, be given the chance. Yeah, which I actually think is a is a hopefully 
going to happen because um, I think that's a really good idea. He's apparently wants to include a bunch of um, flashbacks as well that show how Moreau's backstory and how he got started on the island, yeah. all the experiments before the events of, of the story itself take place. That seems like the way to do it, like to really unpack yeah. this. Not in this... I'm I'm a little confused by your guys' support of elements of this film because I think it's a disaster. I think it's a true disaster on almost I, every level. When I, I like about, a lot of the scenes with Marlon Brando. I think the movie is at its best when he's in it. But, and when... For example, the piano thing. The piano thing. I l- really like that scene because it's just weird and off-kilter and bizarre. I love how... When he, when Moreau, just before Moreau gets killed, he just sort of just walks in with like a plate of cookies and a glass of milk and is like, um, okay, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing in my house? I didn't know that you were coming over, but sure, let me show you Rhapsody in Blue (laughs) for some reason. It is one of the great, I hesitate to say great moments, because it's not a great moment, it's bizarre, but it's one of the most entertaining moments in the movie where we see Brando for the first time, where he's being yeah. carted along on this this giant throne through the jungle in all of this absurd white makeup. And Marlon Brando's delivery is so strange because you can, when, once you know he's getting fed the lines, you can hear the pauses as he waits for the next line. You know? Mm. You can. You can, and that gives it a very odd rhythm. And I think it's a testament to how good an actor Marlon Brando was, even at his laziest and his least yeah. committed. That I agree with you, John. That a lot of the Brando stuff is pretty interesting just through the sheer weirdness of that performance. Yeah, and look, like I love the scene where he's introducing his quote-unquote children, and. Uh, the little guy puts out his hand to shake uh, whatever the hell the main character's name is, his Douglas. hand. Douglas, whatever, it doesn't even matter. Puts his hand out to shake his hand, and Brando just says, he's only trying to be polite. And it's like, these little moments where Brando is putting in at least the semblance of an effort... And yeah, I agree. It shows that he is a good actor because he's not completely throwing it to the wayside. Like, he is so such a weird person in himself that he can almost I think appreciate Moreau. In a way, I think he considers it effort without it being effort. In a, it's just a bizarre sort of mindset yeah. that Brando may have, may have had. It just reminds me... All of the stories about Brando's involvement in this and several other films reminds me of something that uh, Chris Reeves said yeah. uh, about working with him on Superman. I must say, I don't, I don't say this to be vicious, but I don't worship at the altar of Marlon Brando because I feel that he's, he's copped out in a certain way. He's no longer in the leadership position that he could be. He could really be inspiring a whole generation of actors and by continuing to work. But what happened is the press loved him, whether he was good, bad, or indifferent, Mm -hmm. where people thought he was this sort of institution no matter what he did. So he doesn't care anymore. And I just think it would be sad to be 53, whatever he is, and not give a damn, that's all. I just think it's too bad that the man has kind of been forced into that hostility. Uh, And how he was, he basically said that 
I really wish he would have cared more because you don't, you're not getting anything from him. Mm. Um, I had this really fair criticism of Brandau. I think it's interesting the connection between this movie and The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, mm. and in turn its connection to Apocalypse Now, which is another film that had a terrible uh, time getting made, but for different reasons. I find that connection just so fascinating. Like, Moreau and Kurtz are two sides of the same coin. One's looking for humanity, while the other just doesn't give a shit anymore. Yeah. Well, even just the bizarreness of of Hearts of Darkness, the the novella that Apocalypse Now is based on, that the character of Kurtz in the Hearts of Darkness is inspired by Richard Stanley's real-life great-great-grandfather or great-grandfather. Like, it's such an odd little twist of events and detail there. Yeah. It's... You said before we started recording, John, that you feel sorry for Richard Stanley. And I really feel sorry for Richard Stanley too because look at what this did to his career, you know? Yeah, Mm. he didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. He directed a couple of really interesting, low-budget genre movies that got him on the map. It's his first time coming to big studio directing and he... He is clearly such an intelligent person. When you hear him speak in the documentary, he is clearly a smart person. The way that he analyzes things and the way that he discusses things, you can... He's a little bit weird, but he's eccentric, sure. But he knows what he's talking about. There's never a point I found in that documentary where he ever has to stop and think of how he's going to phrase something or anything well, like I that. I mean, no shit. He's been thinking about this. Yeah. He's been living he, with it for like he can just 20 rattle, years. Yeah, he can just rattle it off. <laughs> and that also is um, is much more evident also in, in the extended interviews with him on the disc because he talks at length in that, in that interview about the island of Dr. Moreau and about H.G. Wells and the history of it all and the different film adaptations that has been done before and you can hear the depth of his knowledge there and the deep well of it and how passionate he is about this specific project what it means to him because he read it as a kid you know it was this this book that his parents didn't want him to read because they thought it was too mature and so of course he took it and read it anyway and that it was this formative part of his childhood and that he cared about it deeply so the fact that kind of storyteller who likes to question what's human what is the place of humans in relation to say animals or in hardware robots which is still kind of evident in the final product there are there's some really hand-fisted pablum about animal instinct in the final product but it has squandered any right that it had to have that kind of an intellectual discussion at that point because of everything that has been done to it along the way, you know? It captures some of that playing God stuff from Wells' novel, but it does it by screaming it as loudly as possible, not through <laughs> any real intelligence. Yeah. But Richard Stanley... I, I, I want to see Richard Stanley's version of this story because of that understanding of the material, because of that commitment to the material. I mean, all of those pieces of artwork that that he showed in the documentary are brilliant. The yeah. concept art. The concept art is fantastic. He... Like, and and 
It killed his career, this movie did. It killed his career for 25 years. He didn't direct um, pretty much any, any big notable film until last year with Color Out of Space. He had a, had a few very low-budget things that he got made. Um, uh, he, he made a movie in 2001 called The Secret Glory about an SS officer searching for the Holy Grail that, um, that appears to be a... Doc- yeah, it's a documentary. Uh, he, ma- he, he made a movie called The White Darkness about voodoo in modern-day Haiti, which is also a documentary. He was part of a of an anthology film he directed a segment of but if you if you look at all of these films that he has made none of them have gotten any notice really until last year last year with color out of space starring nicholas cage and um jolie richardson and i was, believe it was produced by elijah wood um <laughs> inexplicable elijah wood just out of nowhere just dived in there but that's the first time that he really gets a shot again. And it's I, I'm so happy about that because he has such a fascinating view of things. He has such a fascinating visual style. He has such an interesting approach to the material that he chooses to do. You, Everything that is interesting about The Island of Dr. Moreau, the movie, is, I think, a result of the Stanley treatment at the start. Mm. I don't think that there is any decision that was made after his exit that resulted in anything positive for the movie, except maybe the casting of David Thewlis, who is really trying. God bless his heart. Jesus. Yeah. And he brings the British back. That... Yeah, he adds a bit of a British texture to the film, which the original novel it's like, is. I think the opening was bizarre with him on the life raft. That <laughs> did not need to be there. That no, entire was... little bit was unnecessary. Well, again, no, I don't think it was. Yeah. I was about to say because that's it's the holdover of the themes from the Stanley version where um, he wanted to to have that conversation about savagery in humans and that humans Man's are animals. Humanity to man. Yeah, humans are animals, and we have animal instincts. And that was you know I can't remember if it was in the extended interview or the documentary. You can tell me, but he originally wanted to frame that opening thing. As a much bigger idea, it was going to be basically the the story that uh, is told in in Jaws with the USS Indianapolis with all of the sharks, and uh, that it was going to start off with you know the plane crashing, and you, you weren't just going to have three guys in a life raft; you were going to have dozens and dozens of people all in the water being attacked by sharks, and Thulis is the only survivor by virtue of just climbing aboard the bodies of his friends. Yeah. And, you know, fighting each other, everyone's scrabbling at each other to try and survive, you know, pushing each other under, you know, holding, using them as shields for the sharks and things. Yeah. And that was going to be the opening of the movie. And Apparently we, they were also meant to be like an octopus person or something. And we also didn't mention this, that Bruce Willis was originally going to be in the David Thewlis part. And that, that went by the wayside. But when Richard Stanley had... That idea, he wanted to start the movie. That he said, "What better a way to start this big budget Hollywood movie than you know a flash forward of Bruce Willis sitting in a hotel room somewhere, totally depressed? He takes out a gun, puts it in his mouth, and pulls the trigger, and that's the first scene of the movie. <laughs> that would have been excellent. And then you flash back to see all this stuff. So you can see just like these ideas that he's having, and you're just like, 
Well, clearly this didn't work for the Hollywood system. Clearly this didn't work no. for New Line in the studio. You know who I think it could work for? Blumhouse. Jason oh, yeah. Blum would give him all the money. <laughs> yeah, nowadays it would work for a ton of people. A24, Blumhouse. Like, there's been a democratization of content in the last decade yeah. or so, now that there are so many more different ways to get it out there. But, you know, back in the day when all you really had was either a VHS release and hope that it got some traction there or get a distributor to put you in a cinema somewhere. Yeah. You know, they didn't have the options then that they did now. So... With the with the ending, how David Lewis gets on the raft or is going to get on a raft... What do you keep calling him says, David Lewis? Uh, isn't that his name? Lewis. T-H-E-W-L-I-S. Okay. Okay. When he says... When David says that he, he'll come back, I was like, bullshit. I wouldn't come back. It's like, I'll come back. Really? Really? <laughs> no. Like, no? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't come back, and they wouldn't be able to hold me accountable if I don't. And, and what he, are they going to do? Make boats? Like, like what are they going to do? Hold me to it? And this is the like, other I'm thing. I'm not coming back. I, I just... And again, I can't remember if this is in the documentary or the interview, but in Stanley's treatment of it, it was set in the near future. It was set in the dystopian future of the year 2010, mm. um, which is actually held over in, if you'll have heard in the trailer, dear listeners, the narrator say, in the year 2010. But it's, it's never <laughs> expressed in the movie. But in, in Stanley's treatment of it, in his script, it was originally supposed to have been a set in a in a near future on the verge of World War Three, that the plane it's crash... It's actually 10 years early. Yeah, that the plane crash was caused by the EMP effect of a, of a nuclear strike and that Thulis, for the entire movie, doesn't know what happened. He doesn't know if there's anyone left out there. If this yeah. island of this lunatic doctor and his humanimals are the last surviving people on Earth and... What does that mean for the species? What does that mean if if this is what's what is left of life? And it, of course, it it keeps him with the the themes of yeah. playing God, of you know the destructiveness of science when used by corrupted people. And it's like it's it's as if New Line just got the script and went through it and was like, no, that's interesting. Get rid of that. That's that's too interesting. Get rid of that. But let's let's get this down to the most. Uh, banal version of this story that we could possibly imagine. I think the person who I disliked most in the documentary was the guy who runs New Line. Mm, Bob Shea. I disliked him because it's like, how can you so completely miss the point? Well, like that bizarre segment where he says that he knew something was off about Richard Stanley because he asked for four sugars in his coffee. Like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> he dislikes his coffee sweet, you ass like so many other things could have tipped you off to the fact that richard stanley's a bit of a weird guy perhaps the wicker apparently uh before making color out of space richard stanley and swedish filmmaker henrik moller apparently performed a ritual to the lovecraftian god yog sothoth (laughs) in the pyrenees to get the film made but what I don't know, maybe look at the company he keeps and you'll get a better understanding of the man. Don't judge him on 
having a bit of a sweet tooth. There's the story he told about the the warlock, uh, the warlock, <laughs> who granted him luck in his meeting with Marlon Brando, who eventually died from complications in a surgery, leading to everything. Oh, I don't think for- he died. No, he did. Oh. It says on the IMDb trivia page that he died. It's it it's never stated in the documentary. It's stated he got sick yeah. in the documentary. So I don't Yeah. No. I don't want to to, you know, give him incorrect that's, information about this warlock, so just full disclosure. That that something happened with this warlock leading to the hurricane. Not that death really means anything to someone who can commune with like pagan spirits. Like everything fell apart. And Richard Stanley attributed it to just black magic. I attribute it to greed. I attribute the failings of this movie to greed. They wanted a safe movie. The simple fact that they had Val Kilmer there basically assured that Richard Stanley's version of the film wasn't going to get made. I, I enjoyed a lot of what Val Kilmer did in this movie, especially in the back half. However... This, his presence alone meant that Richard Stanley would wasn't going to make his movie. Like, that if, it wouldn't have worked, because if, he was too much of yeah. a box office draw at that point. If I was a director at that time, and the studio said, we're going to give you Marlon Brando, I would treat it as an act of sabotage. <laughs> hmm. Well, Fair that's enough. what... I mean, you brought up Bob Shea. He's even in the documentary saying how pissed off he got with the producer when he found out that they had cast Marlon Brando, because Bob Shea had worked with Marlon Brando before, and he knew what a nightmare this was going to be. Yeah, and I'd be sitting there just going, no, get Hopkins, get anyone else. Hell, get Porkins to play Moreau. Don't give me Brando, because Brando's going to make it his movie. And by God, he makes it his movie. Who do you cast in the... The miniseries, if it gets made. Lithgow is Moreau. I was going to say that, yeah. Jesus Christ, not um, everyone can be Lithgow. You have to give the boys some breathing room. I see, I uh, see Brian Cox, too. Yeah. Brian Cox, yeah. Brian Cox, yeah. No, yes. Nicholas Holt as Montgomery. Yes. Hopkins as well would be a good one. Uh, yeah, I'd say Nicholas Holt as Montgomery, because I could buy that. Um, I could see Bradley Cooper. As, as Montgomery? Yeah. Someone, yeah, I see it. I don't, I don't know. Who's, who's an actor that has kind of a sleaziness and a... a McConaughey. McConaughey as Mac- Montgomery. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. And uh, just... All right, all right, all right. Get, like, Timothy Chalamet as yeah. uh, the Prendick character. <laughs> because yeah. that's or the initial Alfie Allen, because he just looks things. exactly like David Thewlis. Someone needs yeah. to cast <laughs> Alfie... <laughs> Someone needs to cast Alfie Allen and David Thewlis as father and son. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, what about Rafe Spall? Rafe Spall could play him. Yeah. Yeah. Get Timothy Spall as bloody Moreau. Yes. He's got he's got mad scientist Jim energy. Jim Broadbent. Jim Broadbent. He would be re- very weird. He would be very weird. He'd be, like, hugging the human animals. Like, we just got... Uh, also, Ron Perlman as the Speaker of the Law? Brilliant. What? <laughs> Brilliant. It's he so has such a stoicism to him. I love it. Ron Perlman, to be fair, wasn't that big of a name in, in 96, so it wasn't as odd a uh, uh, casting choice as it seems now. Yeah. He brings a gravitas to but the character. It was unexpected. 
Yeah. Hell, what like, about Ron Perlman as Moreau? But, like, more of a physical threat. No, I could definitely see him as Montgomery. Stephen Lang as Montgomery. <laughs> Montgomery doesn't have to be this young fella. Oh, no, no. Ron Perlman and Stephen Lang, I'm not convinced that they're not the same person. I've never seen them together. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have, Lawson, because they're the same person. <laughs> they're not that similar. <laughs> This is gonna I, sound. I just, this is gonna sound like an unnecessary shot at Ron Perlman, but I feel like like they're the same person. But Stephen Lang has all of the acting talent, and Ron Perlman has all of like the 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 physical presence. But I I feel like we're maybe reaching the end here. This has been a very rambling and unfocused conversation, which I think befits the film that we're talking about. Yeah. Hmm. Um. There. Uh, I I don't. I think it's sort of a fool's errand to expect any any discussion of this movie to be simple <laughs> and uncomplicated because this is a movie that it by its very nature cannot be discussed in rational know, terms in rational it, terms it, yeah it begets chaos it does yeah and um, i i find it an exercise a very good proof of concept that you really need to know who you're hiring mm. like don't give someone money unless you know who they are. And if you're going to support a up-and-coming director, actually support them. But also, yeah. like, that, all of that bullshit behaviour that really famous people can get away with in Hollywood. You yeah. know, it's just not... No, it's, it's pointless. It's, it's destructive, it causes problems, it's not earned. You know, if you don't think that your ego can handle just being a bit part in another person's movie, don't be an actor. Like, even when you're playing the lead in something, and I've done this, it's still a group effort. It's what, a. Why did Kilmer want to switch to the smaller role when he was going to have to be there the whole time anyway? I think it's for the. I think it was for the best. Like I think Kilmer works perfectly well as Montgomery because I'd and he rather been have wasted on the main character I, who had no character. I'd rather have Thulis as Douglas, someone who actually gives a shit to at least a certain degree. Thulis, God bless reached... him. I, he's trying. He's trying. Yeah. He and Feruzabok uh, and Marco Hofschneider, who is actually oh, in the movie him. a lot, but. In the documentary, yeah. you can see that he's, pr- he's perhaps mm. the most rational and sane person. Um, yeah, involved, right. yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I feel sorry for them because they're sort of left high and dry and they are mm. trying. They are really trying. Though when we, were wa- when we were watching this and when the credits started and I saw all of these names pop up, I was like, huh, I think it's very interesting that Batman is going to take... Uh, Ares, the god of war, to an island that's being run by Superman's father, where one of the human animals is Aquaman's dad. <laughs> yes, those actors have previously played other characters. <laughs> <laughs> or would do so in the future. Um, but, uh... I think we've reached the end of our discussion. Yeah, so, why don't, why don't also- we, um... Just before we leave, if we can, come up with an MVP and uh, our favourite sequence in the film. Um, I'll start us off and say that my MVP is Richard Stanley. Because even though even though he's, 
his his involvement in the end result is minimal. I think that everything good about it is pretty much a holdover yeah. from his involvement. And I feel sorry for the man. I feel sorry that he felt that he spent a quarter century in the wilderness due to what happened here, which was not his fault. It was not his fault at all. And, and being crowned the MVP on our tiny podcast is yeah. little consolement. Yep. Um, I think that... And I think that we were all robbed, basically. I think of all, all what kind of career might Richard Stanley have had if he could have kept making bigger budget movies and more high profile movies. What might he have done with his tone and idiosyncrasies and style over the years if he had been allowed to do it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. In terms of my favourite scene, I suppose it's the introduction of Moreau. Just because it's so yeah. strange. It's so strange. And I think it's like this movie at like peak fever dream. Um, I don't know how else. Other than the opening credits, which were just mm. Other bizarre. Than, yeah, it's just, I can't recommend this movie in any way <laughs> other than ironically. I, I mentioned it last week. The only reason I even watched it was so that I could watch the documentary. It's on the list because I wanted to see the documentary about the making of it. So, you know... I, I can't really say a favourite moment because I don't have a lot of favourite moments, but that Fair moment enough. is certainly the strangest and most entertaining, I feel, just because you spend the whole scene going, what is happening? Anyways, how about you, John? Well, I my MVP, again, yeah, Richard Stanley, everything good about the movie comes from him. The people who he hired to do the makeup effects the all of the good parts of the script come from him all of the good ideas come from him everything good about this movie was due to richard stanley and everyone else just butchered his you know his idea Hmm. his hard this movie that he fought so hard to make and i completely understand why he ended up not getting on the plane and just living in some bloke's farm in Queensland. Like, that's completely reasonable. I would go off the rails, too. Like, this, the same thing happened to Josh Trank. Like, these sort of more independent directors who don't really understand the studio, studio system, system left and, a stu- and, and a studio system who don't understand these really talented artists... Some of them work, some of them don't. Yeah. There are enough examples and, of it working out, but yeah. The Josh Trank yeah. thing, to hear that, was that's kind of a personality thing as yeah. well. Like, he and Miles Teller were apparently... <laughs> I'm not sure if, if it was ever confirmed that they actually got into a physical altercation, but there was plenty of talk about it seeming to be headed that way. I wouldn't want to get into a physical fight with Miles Teller. He'd wrap his weird stretchy arms around me and strangle me to death. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, and I think my favorite scene in the movie is if you took out everything that doesn't have Moreau in it, or uh, Montgomery pretending to be Moreau, if you took everything that isn't that out of the movie and you just cut those things together, those that would be my favorite scene. Uh, <laughs> my... I'm gonna have three uh, MVPs. Uh, David Thewlis for coming in late and 
holding on for dear life. Uh, Marco Hofschneider for being a real champ. Yeah. About all the bullshit. For getting punched in the nuts by the shortest man on earth and realizing that if he beats him up, then he'll be known as the guy who beat up the shortest man on earth. And and Feruza Balk, who really did her best to support Richard. Yeah. After everything went down with all of that. And he threatened to slit her own throat with a sushi knife. So that's interesting. My favorite scene has to be when... Moreau and Mojai, the uh, uh, little fellow, are playing piano. Yeah. And the prop master, who must have been out of his mind, built a tiny grand piano <laughs> to put on top of the actual grand piano. And, I don't know, it just worked for me. Like, legitimately, while we were watching that It, this movie, when that scene happened, I was like, oh, that's where that's from! Yeah. Oh, that's what they're taking the piss out of. I get it now. And it's just <laughs> an, it's just a really nice moment. Yeah. Uh, that and when Moreau plays Rhapsody in Blue. If Personal it's Rhapsody in Blue, I'm mine. gonna dig it. Uh, so Lawson, I can't in good faith call any movie that uses that song terrible. Uh, so what have you got for us next week? Well, before I reveal what it is that we're going to be talking about next week, I have some breaking news here that has come out while we are recording the podcast. I know you guys are going to be thrilled about this uh, because they are apparently making a third Mamma Mia movie. (laughs) The look of disgust on Harley's face there uh, can never be properly described. But yeah, apparently they're... But why? I don't hate Abba, just... Because the, because the previous two combined made over a billion dollars? What like, more is there to say? It's like, I get it. Mamma Mia, here we go again. Uh, again. Well, Second, the produ- why bring it up? Producer Judy Kramer is saying that it, it's meant to be a trilogy and that uh, she is developing it during this shutdown. Yeah, because remember how at the end of the second Mamma Mia movie... That was that scene where Thanos came in, <laughs> took all of the Infinity Stones, snapped his fingers, everyone died except for Amanda Seyfried and Meryl Streep, and then Meryl Streep looked at the camera and said, did we lose? Meryl Streep was uh, already dead by so- the end of that movie. I'm not even joking. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's not a spoiler, it's in the trailer. Okay, um, meant, 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 meant to be a trilogy. The first works as a standalone. I know. Oh! Anyways, anyway, uh, look forward, you listeners. Know, there's like so much. There's so much lore in the Mamma Mia movies, and so much plot that they needed to get through. There like, is they a surprising. Pierce there is a surprising amount of character dynamics and relationships that stretch across like decades. But anyway, um, a surprisingly large cast too. But mm. we'll save that for our inevitable episode on the Mamma Mia, which in like four years I will. I insist that we do. Because I genuinely love that first movie, unironically. The song Mamma Mia is one of the best song pop songs ever written. Yes, and I I'll agree. die on that hill. I, I don't know why you th- think I despise Mamma Mia. <laughs> I No, I'm just saying, I want it out there I just think that the I sequel, love that song. I just think the existence of a sequel is pointless. Money! Okay. More money! That's why it was made, Harley. 
Anyway, we got next week. Next week we will be talking about Baz Luhrmann's 1996 punk adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, styled as Romeo plus Juliet, of course. If you'd like to watch along with us at home, if you're one of those rare people who has a Canopy subscription, it's available there. But that's me. If you're normal, it's available on the Microsoft Store, the Google Play Store, the iTunes Store, and the YouTube Store for rental and purchase. And also, I could always just close my eyes and watch it on the movie cinema of my mind, because I've seen it so many times. Uh, you can find Lawson at Exodia the Candy Counter. It's his blog. It's in the description, wherever it appears on your podcast app of choice. You can find John and I at On the Bright Side, which is our blog, which has had not much traffic since cinemas were shut down. Mm. Uh, same for Lawson's. My local uh, cinema has reopened now. They're playing a bunch of old movies. Stuff that had their oh, runs. Did you hear? Th- stuff that had their runs that they're interrupted. Re-releasing, and... Yeah. Did you hear that they're apparently re-releasing the first Star Wars in like 4K? Empire Strikes Back. In America. Empire yeah. Strikes Back. Yeah. Well, what's uh, my my local cinema is oh, playing? Yeah, that's like, right. Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. My local cinema is playing Finding Dory and hmm. a few of the ones that had their their inter their runs interrupted. Artemis Fowl? No. Yeah. The first, World first Toy Story, Finding Nemo's also playing. Uh, you can find our Twitter in the description wherever it appears. Uh, on the podcast app of choice. Yes. Uh, give us a like. Uh, subscribe. Share it to your friends. Uh, give us a comment. Nice comments, because the mean ones could be quite hurtful. <laughs> uh... <laughs> And tell us which humanimal you would want to be. Yeah. You can be a mix of a few. Yeah. Uh, like the like, hyena yeah. swine is both I want to be a bird so I can get the hell off that island. <laughs> <laughs> that night, that island is a nightmare. I'd want to be gone too. Hmm. I'd be a fish person. I could get over my fear of deep depths then. I think I'd be some sort of... A hyena swine. Yeah, hyena swine works for me. Hyena swine works for me. Uh, well, I've been hyena swine. I have been Birdman. <laughs> and I have been, and hopefully will continue to be Fish Boy. <laughs> oh, bye. This whole episode. <laughs>